Hey everybody, welcome to We Make the Pod by Talking. This is one of your co-hosts, Takashi. And today we're going to be having a discussion on ethnic studies, uh, both in the university level and the K-12, and just our experiences on it. And then uh, we have uh, Carlos and Aldrich here today. And y'all could go ahead and just introduce yourselves. Okay. Yeah, my name's Carlos. I'm a PhD in linguistics, PhD recipient. My name is uh, Aldrich Limpen-Sabak, um, high school teacher at Edison High School, teaching ELD, English, and Ethnic Studies. Cool. And then we might have another person joining us, but he'll pop in a little later if, he co- if he's able to make it. Um, I think one of the first questions we can kind of go over is uh, what exactly is Ethnic Studies? Uh, what does it mean for us individually? And you know, how has it impacted us uh, I guess, like politically, socially, where we are uh, to this day. And then uh, that'll be the first question um, I'll ask, and then we can kind of go around sharing that. Uh, I guess I can go first. <laughs> um, so for me, ethnic studies, uh, I went to UC San Diego. Um, in high school, I didn't know anything about like, his- like I wasn't interested in history at all. We did have a conservative teacher. I had her for two years and she would, mentioned things that I didn't really agree with but I didn't know how to express it at that time like one thing she mentioned was um she mentioned how the bombing and the atomic bomb in Japan was a good thing and I was just kind of like huh that's kind of weird and she justified it saying like oh more people could have been killed you know if the bomb hadn't been dropped or like it was to you know scare the Soviet Union uh from attacking the U.S. and at that time like I didn't feel attacked or anything personally but I felt kind of uncomfortable and weird, but I didn't know how to express it. And generally, like, history classes were pretty boring to me. It wasn't until I went to college that, um, you know, and just to kind of give a background for folks that, that might not know, I'm actually a math and ethnic studies major. So I started off with, uh, you know, as an engineer, but then um, I couldn't pass physics. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I ended up uh, having a hard time with it. And... I remember taking an ethnic studies class my second year at the university and it was an Asian American studies class. And I didn't realize at that time, but it was actually a kind of a more advanced, like upper division class. It wasn't like an intro, but uh, me and my friend who is an immigrant from China uh, who came out like a, like a teenager in San Francisco, uh, he also had an interesting perspective, but he really enjoyed that class too. And it was kind of an eye-opening for me because it was about the history of Asian Americans, like Chinese American, Indian Americans, Korean Americans, uh, Filipino Americans, Japanese Americans in a more contemporary setting. And that, that was, that's when I first learned about like the case of Vincent Chin, uh, the racism that Asian Americans face, uh, the model minority myth, uh, kind of like your typical Asian American one-on-one um, curriculum. But I think for me at that time, it it was just like, oh, wow, I didn't know anything about this. And it made me like more curious about that uh, curriculum and the course. So um, I took some uh, courses in community college. I ended up taking Chicano studies and I was I actually really enjoyed that class a lot because it was kind of based in more community college setting. And yeah, I think for me, it was just uh, eye opening and I just got more and more curious about history and sociology and, you know, just how society plays out. So it was kind of like a foot in the door for me to 
get more interested in uh, history with because you know K through 12 I was not interested in history it was like my worst subject but now it became like a subject I I was so interested in that I I ended up uh, double majoring and then um yeah I'll, I'll, I'll pause for there and and then y'all could kind of just share briefly or however long you want <laughs> about your experiences with ethnic studies uh I'll go next so I've, I've, I was never an ethnic studies major, uh, in college. I majored in, I also majored in math, which is how I met Takashi. Uh, but I, I, my second major was linguistics. So, um, I did take, I did take one or two ethnic studies courses. I, I remember taking a, a Native American studies course in, in, uh, the summer. But I would say my, my introduction to ethnic studies or, or the the themes and the the material ethnic studies was introduced to me pretty pretty early. Um, I mean, I, I I grew up in a house where like my mom went to college. Uh, my mom she went to UC Santa Cruz, and she had already been introduced to like the civil rights movement uh, and I guess a more academic or intellectual introduction to uh i guess political movements um um yeah things like ethnic studies she did latin american studies which i i think is i i think is very similar um so i grew up in a house where like my the uh, the parent uh was already exposed to to like those studies and that perspective and world view uh presented from like universities right so um, for me, it wasn't like very uh, unfamiliar by the time I got to college and then was introduced to things like that to like, or like that type of research uh, or those types of like courses. Um, so I don't know, I, I would say that I was, that I was, that I kind of, kind of grew up with like a lot of that information already. Um, even more so than when I, when I started school or what, it, uh, was in school like even in even in middle school I would say like uh, I remember uh, my seventh grade history class uh, my teacher actually did a segment on Mexican history or particularly the indigenous series the indigenous history where he talked about like the Mayans and the Aztecs and that was really cool I thought because that was um, you know that was pretty different from history as I as I had been presented to it before uh as it had been pre presented to me before yeah uh so so that was cool i think um i think that instructor he was motivated to present that type of material because uh the school was majority mexican anyway the the town i live in is like 70 percent mexican maybe maybe more right so like the students there are everyone's everyone's like mexican-american or mexican so I think I think that had to do with um, I think there was some motivation to sort of accommodate the students by presenting more more of their own history too. Yeah. So at so at least um so I would say in terms of like like ethnic studies or being introduced to the the content of ethnic studies or Chicano studies even um, I was presented to that in a formal setting as early as the seventh grade. Yeah. Um, High school, I don't remember being introduced to stuff like that or to anything related to like Chicano studies or ethnic studies. 
uh, I'd gone, I'd gone to a private school after, after going to a, attending a, a, a public middle school. So that's probably why that, that, that changed. Um, yeah. And then, and then I went to community college too. And I also took actual Chicano studies courses. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, like I, I, I would say I've, I've sort of been, I've sort of been entrenched in a lot of that um, knowledge from, from a pretty early age, um, at least because, you know, my mom was already kind of introduced to that in college herself. Cool. Thanks, y'all. Um, I can go next, of course. So ethnic studies for me, it's, it's amazing for me when I look back as you, were, you both are sharing, I was like, gosh, it's amazing how much ethnic studies has been part of my life um, since towards the tail end of high school, one of my mentors in high school uh, mentioned it, but still it wasn't making sense to me until uh, college. And um, I, uh, the only school I got accepted to for undergrad was San Francisco State University. That's where I ended up going, which is also the birthplace of ethnic studies. Um, at least as we know it, like, right, ethnic studies, of course, existed before it was called ethnic studies. Um, but that's where it was coined at SF State. And um, while I was there, I eventually became an Asian American studies and sociology um, double major. Um, and it, it, I started getting involved with the community. Like it was the first time like that I really got immersed in this like extremely political community um, based organizing like kind of community. And similar to what Takashi was saying, like, in high school, I, I, I was never really a history person. I, I don't know if you remember, Takashi, when we were in TP, it took me the whole year to pass the history uh, CSET. Gosh, I hate that. <laughs> I look back at that, I hated that so much because I was never a history person. I, I only really understood history through ethnic studies. And I had like one or two good teachers in high school, but I didn't have a lot of history um, accessible. Um, um, which is weird because there was actually ethnic studies in Stockton um, back in the day. Um, but while I was there, definitely that really, um, you know, sparked something in me, like sense of purpose, uh, responsibility. And one of the things that it really did was I never knew Stockton history until I took ethnic studies classes in college. And it was weird. Like there's this thing in Stockton where you never learn about Stockton until you leave. Um, so when I was in my classes, you know, at SF State or even when we were at UCLA and, and someone would talk about Stockton, I'd be like, huh, really? Like, it was weird. Like, I didn't know about Larry Itliong. I didn't know about the, the, some of the foundations of the UFW being locally. Um, and then realizing my grandfather was part of all that um, tripped me out, you know? Um, so, and while I was at SF State, um, I taught ethnic through an ethnic studies student teacher pipeline called PEP, Pinai Pinai Educational Partnerships. Um, while I was there, Tucson, Arizona lost their Mexican American Studies program, which was a big deal, right? Um, but while at SF State, I actually helped with the community to get um, ethnic studies uh, institutionalized in SFUSD, which was a, a big deal at that time. So. I went from there and, you know, very much like it was all these programs and student orgs that very much politicized me. Um, and then when I decided to become a teacher, um, I went to UCLA and with 
Um, of course, Takashi no Morris or Marus. Um, he and I briefly did an ethics studies program at SEPA in Echo Park for a short amount of time. And then when I was done there, I moved home to Stockton, but there was no ethnic studies yet. Um, I taught elementary for a few years, then I eventually transitioned to high school. But um, what I did do when I moved here was myself and two other friends, uh, one went to UCLA for undergrad, the other one went to Berkeley. Um, we actually, uh, she's the woman who was here started uh, something called the Little Manila After School Program. You might know her, Takashi, Alma Riego. I think you know Alma. Yeah, so we, her, she, we, we grew up together. Uh, we went to the same schools. And um, when we came back, well, she came back and she started this after school program for Filipino American studies. And then a few years later, I came back, um, someone else came back, and we all contributed to this. Um, and then as uh, I've been home, it were, it was, we um, expanded our program to do comparative ethnic studies. So we started a Chicano, Chicana, Chicanic studies program, an African-American studies program, um, all after school through uh, the program Little Manila out here in Stockton. And um, it was all these students we were mentoring and all these other educators we pulled in um, that advocated for us to get ethnic studies passed in 2017, 16. Um, as I think it was 16 as a, um, a course description. And then since then we have it like full out institutionalized in SUSD. We um, just recently got put forward a teacher on special assignment. Um, so ethnic study, we actually had a big, big meeting last night. We started a community collaborative on, on the, our district ethnic studies program. So we're trying to make a like a really big steering community committee um, to help figure out the direction of ethnic studies in our district and in our city. So we have like this intergenerational um, coalition of folks who are contributing ideas in the curriculum, how the teachers can engage with things. Um, we have like we we set up things with local historians, um, so we can make our our ethnic studies programs very much local and community based. So we're, it's a lot of work. But it's definitely night and day from when I was a young person growing up out here in Stockton versus where it is now. So, um, so yeah, so I was like, for me, it's like really weird how ethnic studies for me has been very full circle. I think like for many of us, like as college students, we might think like, gosh, when I was younger, I wish I kind of learned about this, some of this stuff, you know, and, and it's and something that I get to see happen now um, as a high school teacher locally. That's cool. Thank you guys for sharing. Uh, yeah, something I was picking up on was ethnic studies is not just something that's kind of given to us. It's not like a standard curriculum like history, science, or math. It's like we, we almost have to kind of seek out for it or in like for Carlos, your case, like you had to be kind of born into it, right? <laughs> like because your mom already had that uh, exposure to it. And I'll just in your case, you, you almost had to like fight for it, like start an after school program and then, you know, kind of dig deeper into it. Uh, and for me, it's like I just took it by chance, but it, w it wasn't like a requirement for graduation. I just kind of looked at the description and found it kind of interesting. And yeah, going along with what you said, Aldrich, I felt like a lot of the ethnic studies major, not all of it, I would say like the majority, were also kind of doing a lot of the community organizing or like the campus uh, activism that was happening. I know uh, Carlos and I would spend a lot of time at the Cross Cultural Center. 
uh, which it was kind of like the hub of uh, a lot of uh, students of color activism that was happening on campus. And we also had like a retention and outreach program for like, you know, inner city in San Diego for low income youth of color in the neighborhood. But uh, I noticed majority of the, the people that were doing those things were also ethnic studies major. So there is some kind of a, you know, connection with like that major and the passion to change communities. And not to say that you have to be an ethnic studies major to do community organizing, because I believe that it doesn't matter what your major is, you can still do both. I mean, I, I was technically a math major also, um, and Carlos too, but we, we were still kind of doing our, you know, campus activism or, or organizing. And I guess I, I'll be kind of curious to hear about, like, how was how uh, a, because that's something I was thinking about was, I feel like ethnic studies has been around since the 60s, at least the official name of ethnic studies. And I have heard of like folks saying like professors might be getting complacent or they just kind of do it on the academic side, but not necessarily, they're not in touch with the community anymore. It almost seems like, I'm not saying all the departments, but maybe like certain departments on campuses and certain professors might be getting to the point where it's just becoming like another department, like a history or sociology, right? And I, I would be kind of curious to hear about your thoughts on that. Cause I, I remember I've had some professors that may not be as in touch with the community as much maybe, or that, that used to have it, but kind of lost it as they aged, or maybe they got satisfied with the salary or, um, cause we're still under the capitalist system. Like how do you manage to do an ethnic studies under a system where like historically it's oppressing the people that we're trying to serve, right? I mean, that's also another question that I, I, I think about, too. Uh, but, yeah, I'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts about that. I would like to add, um, if that's cool. Thank you, Takashi. It's a good question. Um, two of my mentors, um, Alison Tintianko Kobales and also the late Don Pohulano Mabalan, um, she knows some of these stories. She was, she was a history PhD, but she did her own. She, did, she went to community college and stopped in Delta College. And then she went to UCLA to major and then eventually master in Asian American studies. And then she did her PhD in history at Stanford, uh, Don did. And she'd always talk about how the further she went up in, in education and academia, like the more she was criticized for like uh, being at protests or organizing or working with the community um, in Stockton or San Francisco and LA. Um, she would tell me stories that when she was a student at UCLA, um, she was like one of the students that used to be advocating for Chicano studies at that time. And she was saying like, it was really sad because folks in the community would criticize someone for being up in academic, in, in academia, because like, it's, it's like a celebrity thing sometimes. Um, and then folks in academia would criticize her for being in the community and doing work. And they're like, Nah, you got to work on your, your research, you know, you got to do that. And it, it sounds like a very common discussion. I know SF State, that was a constant, constant thing. Like, are we going to be present in our communities? Are we going to do this? And then, but then folks were like, well, we're also academics, we're an institution, you know, like we, and of course, it's also like a CSU versus UC thing sometimes, like, like a more research-based school. Um, but at least how I've seen that whole thing as a high school teacher is 
what we do to help center ourselves is bring in students to be part of the discussion um, is how we're trying to meet that need or to be like very much community-based. It's different, of course, because we're in academia, but we try to get as much youth input and youth guidance and make things youth-led as possible. It's not always easy. Like last night we had a meeting that went till seven on a Friday and teenagers are trying to be there for that. <laughs> it's late, you know. Um, but at least as a high school teacher, that's definitely how we've tried to do that. Where when we do things, discuss curriculum, the direction, we, we try, we're not perfect locally in Stockton, but we're, we try to bring in the youth voices or we bring in young people who just started their first year at the college and maybe took some classes just to see what their input is. Um, otherwise what happens is, you know, we're not very fresh with our ideas and we kind of go with um, just methods or frames of thinking from like years back that we had. So that's what, that's what we've been doing at least in high school. Yeah, thank you for that, Aldrich. Uh, that that reminded me of just this general this general problem, or not? It's not it's not so much a problem, but it is a conflict uh, that you get in uh, academia um, for academics that want to do like community service, who want to be more involved in communities, who want to address their needs instead of just like researching them. It's a big it's a big um, conflict of interest to sort of try to do that, but then also be an academic and produce research, right? Because on the one hand, like you're, you're studying these people, you're trying to figure out like what, what they need as a community at times, but then, uh, I mean, your job is also to publish re research. And a lot of that work, a lot of the academic work, because it's so because it's so um, specialized, I guess, right? And the reason, and the questions you're trying to address are not like, how do we help these people? How do we, how do we do this? It's just like, what is, what's, what is the state of affairs, right? Um, that can be so time-consuming that, like, I mean, and that's, and that's what you get paid to do, right? Right? It, you get paid to do that work, so you have to do that work, and that can be very time-consuming. Going to conferences to talk to other people who also are who are researchers and so they also have the same time commitment to do to produce work to kind of talk about things and I don't I don't like the term uh, live in an ivory tower but I mean it is kind of like that like it's in a sense it's uh, even if you're sort of even if it's a reluctant thing right like you kind of have to be in that ivory tower to do your work and you lose you lose the 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 access to time to really um give results to like the community you're studying so that happens a lot like i felt that a lot too because i mean i did linguistics i did linguistics so that i could study indigenous communities in mexico and so i had this whole idea that like i'm going to do community work for these people too like i'm going to give them i'm going to try to help them develop you know, uh, like language instruction and materials and stuff like that. Actually, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh he's mo so. And, but you know, in in doing my PhD, right? Completing my PhD, like you know, years later, like I I really didn't accomplish much to that, or at least I don't feel like as accomplished in that regard. Like I feel like I didn't do as much as I would have wanted to, and it's because you know I had to impress my. I have to impress my like my advisors 
right? Because I have to, I have to publish, I had to write my dissertation and stuff like that, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a conflict of interest uh, to, to try to be an academic, to be a researcher and the, but then also at the same time, like help these communities and, or, or do more, do more personal work, I guess, to, to their end, right? And I, I, I'm sorry, I, what I was going with, with, uh, with the idea of the ivory tower, it's like the things you produce are not even accessible to these communities, right? You know, a lot of the time, sometimes they are, and you can try, you can make an effort to make that work accessible. Um, but that it's hard. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. The institution of the in university is definitely not, it's, it's not um, structured to kind of give back to communities as much as we'd like. Hey, Marquis, uh, can you hear us or? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. I was, um, I was, my, my grandmother doesn't like the air conditioner. So I was, I was, what you heard was me trying to negotiate, turning that off. So I, and I had to oh, go yeah. to my mom's room. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can hear you guys. And I, I just got on for whatever reason, I was trying to log on through Google Meet because I, I saw that I had an invite from Google Meet. Oh. And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And then somehow, I just went on my computer. I was trying to do it while going from my phone, but I just chose my, chose to go on, onto my laptop. And um, then I saw that there was a Zoom, and uh, you know, Zoom was my bread and butter. So I just logged on. So <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. Good to hear from you. Um, do you want to yeah. just do a quick introduction, uh, Marquise? Just like who you are, what you do, and then like what ethnic studies mean mean to you, and uh, maybe like your experience with ethnic studies in general. Yeah. So uh, Marquise Anderson. Um, I think this is actually uh, something that's uh, kind of fitting. I actually just took on an African name. Uh, so my, I have an African middle name. So it's Longi, which is, means teacher, and Kikongo. Uh, and sh uh, Shungu uh, means wise in Kitatela. So if you know um, about Patrice Lumumba, he was uh, Kitatela. Um, so that name is Longi Shungu, means like wise teacher, basically, or teacher wise or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a teacher in Los Angeles Unified School District. I teach history at University Pathways Public Service Academy. Um, also the athletic director there. Also, I'm an artist, a visual artist, and I am in the process of, I guess I've, I've already sort of done it in some ways, but I'm start form, starting to formalize it. Uh, and sort of like a, create, a creative company um, or an art company of, of sorts um, called AppSaw. And um, as far as what ethnic studies means to me, um, I mean, it's, it's such a loaded word. Like, what, is, what does that even mean, ethnic studies? You know, I think one way to think about it is I was an anthropology major in college. Um, and, you know, that was ethnic studies because at some point I found myself on uh, the, the Ono Odom Reservation in, uh, near, near Tucson uh, with a bunch of white folks. Um, and we were sort of doing this Looking back, it's just kind of grotesque, but, uh, you know, kind of just watching these indigenous folks live their lives, you know, it was for Pascua, uh, and they were, you know, we watched, uh, you know, the dance and the whole Pascua ceremony, and uh, so anthropology kind of, in some, in some senses, gave me an introduction to uh, ethnic studies, but also took some ethnic studies classes in college, or, yeah, classes in college, and um, there were good classes. I took... I took a class, 
think on like African-American music or some kind of African-American culture class. And they, they were good classes. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure this is a rich discussion. There's so much I have to say. Um, you know, I think generally speaking as a teacher currently, uh, my approach is to teach, to try to teach my students their history as much as I can. And that means that I have to constantly be learning about different traditions and different peoples um, and, and, and trying to uh, disseminate that to my students. Um, and I teach over in Watts. And I always assume that my students don't really know much about their roots and their culture. Uh, and so I kind of lead and say like, what do you know about your culture and your roots? And then I kind of like insert, right? And so, um, you know, my students are predominantly Latinx and, and, and I would say African, but black. Um, and, you know, I really, I really, I'm really big on uh, teaching about indigenous studies. Um, I'm big on, um, you know, I go into Mesoamerican civilization, um, real tough. I go into Africa, African history, um, you know, and, and just different aspects. And, you know, just trying to, I think, trying to get students to see how rich their cultures are, even though that they've been sort of uh, pulled away from them or, or, or gentrified or taken away from them. Um, you know, there's still, there's still aspects of our culture that we practice that are thousands of years old. And I always tell students, like, you know, my, my Latinx students, like, I'm, uh, I'm marveled at the, at the fact that, like, people have been growing corn for over 10,000 years. I think that's crazy. So I tell my students that, like, you know, that just, that just shows, like, the rich tradition that goes back a long time. You know, my students, they really appreciate the fact, especially to me as a, as a big, as a big ass black man, uh, you know, I, I try to, I'm, I'm super into like teaching my students about the history and indigenous history in Mexico and, you know, and, and Central America and, you know, and in Africa, uh, you know, and, and yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely, ethnic studies is definitely needed, but I definitely, it's, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated project that I think needs to be, uh, I think we ask for too much permission uh, from authorities in terms of what, what, what gets done. And that's largely because of funding, but yeah, I can go on and on, but we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it. Thank you, Marquis. And then uh, Carlos and Aldrich, yeah, thank you for the comments earlier. Um, I know Carlos, you mentioned the ivory tower, uh, specifically in university level, but I can also see it in the K through 12 education too. And then um, I think most of y'all know I teach mathematics and um, like in math, I feel like the curriculum is already set for me. It was like, Hey, this is the stuff that I want you to test the kids on. These are like the assessments that, you know, the students have to do. And I don't, yeah, it's kind of hard for me to find the time to incorporate like ethnic studies model of math, like teaching like Maya mathematics, uh, indigenous math, African math, um, different forms of mathematics that has been around all over the world throughout history. But, um, I'd be kind of curious to hear if, because I know Aldridge, you teach ethnic studies at, in Stockton schools and, you know, Marquise, you teach uh, social studies, but like, w were there any, like, do you feel like, are there any pushbacks from the admins when like you teach the like ethnic studies or when you teach like certain things that are kind of like quote, quote unquote deemed uh, radical? Um, I mean, I know it just depends on like the schools. I've been kind of fortunate enough to have been worked at schools where the principals don't care too much about like what I teach as long as uh, it meets like the curriculum and the standard. But I'd be kind of curious to hear about like, I don't know, maybe like how the admins might perceive or the higher ups might perceive your work. 
Yeah, um, if I can add first, um, thanks for the question, Takashi. Yes and no. So it, it's, it's there, ethnic studies is becoming, this, this is one of the sad things for me with ethnic studies, with how mainstream it's becoming. On one hand, it's beautiful, right? We're having these discussions, we're getting, um, hopefully getting um, young people access to learning, like Marquise is saying, learning their own history, learning about who they are, um, also learning like self-care, self-love, appreciating your own stories, like documenting your own stories. Um, it's very transformative, of course. Um, so that, of course, is some of the beautiful things that ethnic studies um, has brought up. Also, I was going to link this in the chat, but Axios came out with this recent publication with like this Gen Z uh, generation, how like this generation is the least likely amongst all to like fall for fake news anymore. And I think that's large part because of ethnic studies teachers, uh, professors, but also just critical race theory, right? Teaching linguistics, teaching um, like very progressive forms of STEM. Um, I think it's a, a big contribution, especially in the social sciences and humanities. Um, but like, uh, on one hand, like ethnic studies at many high schools is being treated as the new diversity requirement if you work for a company, you know, like, uh, we ain't racist, we got ethnic studies, we got this, like, uh, it's, it's like checking off that box, especially right now when we're thinking about the movement for Black Lives, when we're thinking about, like, issues we have with immigration, um, and ice like it's 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 really weird how that it's it's that it's taken apart and it's how it's coming about you know like it's it's like we're getting something good but we're also getting something that could be tainted you know and it's one of my one of my critiques with the the graduation requirement to have ethnic studies especially when we don't have enough teachers even in like extremely progressive cities like la san francisco they also cannot fill in all the ethnic studies teacher spots. So then what happens is a principal just puts whoever, oh, you have a social science credential? Teach a class, you know? And, and that's what's happening in our district where we're getting teachers who are extremely conservative, don't understand ethnic studies, so they try to water it down to multicultural studies. So one time we had a check-in and we're like, all right, how's everything going? How's your curriculum? And we had one teacher, she didn't do anything. We sh and I sh we shared everything with this teacher, right? And this teacher was like, well, we just talked about food and how we're all like food, you know, we all like different foods. And literally that was the lesson that was happening that whole month, you know, nothing critical, nothing about institutions of power, hegemony, like it was all that. And I think those are the worrisome parts of the mainstreaming of ethnic studies that um, everyone should definitely consider or it's kind of like restorative justice at a lot of districts. When they get ethnic studies, they don't put any money to it. They just get it and it's there um, on the books. But it's not like there's increased funding for teacher recruitment, for PD, for conferences, for resources for curriculum, like none of that. So um, those are some of the challenges. But definitely there are, there can be some pushbacks, you know, especially when you get a principal or whoever who doesn't really understand ethnic studies, but then when you start getting into like the, the, the really deep portions of it, like they're kind of taken back, like what, what, what are you talking about? 
like we had, we had a, uh, an administrator and also a teacher who teaches ethnic studies, who at one of our meetings was like, and this was a different teacher. And they're like, you know, this is kind of un-American. Why are we teaching victimization? You know, and, and we're like taken back because we thought they, us having these very like explicit conversations around uh, white supremacy, intersectionality, like we thought they would have, you know, got some of that, but that was definitely wasn't the case. So, um, and what sucks is as a teacher in the district, we tried to tell all the principals, like, look, we in, in our recent resolution we had passed have strict guidelines for ethnic studies. You had to either take a class and we're only saying one class, right? Not even a major. You've taken one class in college or you did some community organizing work, something um, where you have some kind of knowledge of racial justice, of social justice. Um, and a lot of those haven't been met. And when we try to meet with these principals and higher ups in our district, we got brushed off, you know? And, and it's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's a big part of, part of like ethnic studies where that's becoming exploited or rebranded or used in ways that isn't true to uh, what ethnic studies has been and all the social movements that have inspired ethnic studies, you know? So those are some of the challenges we're having. Um, but yes, we're lucky we have some administrators who are extremely about it, but at the same time, they're administrators who so sometimes their hands are tied with things. Um, but we have many who aren't sure, but they know like, like for example, I'm gonna give you an example. We at our uh, district, myself and several others have been really pushing hard to defund our uh, district police. Specifically the police, the, the uh, $8 million budget we have to have our own police department separate from the city in our district, right? And um, most of the ethnic studies folks and students, you know, we didn't even try to bring it up to them. They just like already were engaging in the discussion. Um, we were um, part of that and, and pushing for that. But what we saw is instead they were trying to few, like put out that fire in, you know, in their eyes. And then they were trying to, but look at ethnic studies, right? We have ethnic studies. We don't have an issue with police and killing black kids and kids of color, you know, like, and, and that's what's happening. You know, they're, they're using it and exploiting it and definitely like redefining what it is. So it's, it's really up to like teachers and, and students and folks in academia to make sure that doesn't happen, but it's definitely a, a big issue that's happening right now. Um, I'll go. Um, so far, as far as my experience, um, you know, I used to teach at Youth Building. Um, Takashi, you know how that is. Youth Build is kind of like, you do what the hell you want to do, but then there's not a lot of support for it. Uh, but I think that I think out, out of the gate, I've always been able to more or less teach what I wanted to teach. Uh, the issue has been getting support, uh, which means that oftentimes I was worn down and wasn't able to be at my best. Um, and then another experience I had actually interviewed for to teach history um, and was actually given another job. So I think that it was kind of a thing where they wanted to have a black a black man on campus, but they didn't necessarily want me to teach history. And I actually I interviewed and I went in talking about colonialism and I didn't get that job, but I was offered a job to teach entrepreneurism, which I took because I needed a job. Um, and the person who was hired was, was, was a white man and another teacher was white. Another history teacher was white. 
So right away, I'm, and, and not that they, I mean, they were progressive or liberal or whatever, um, and, and not bad people, but I think there's a difference when you're talking about who is the face of teaching history and, and, and because there's experiences that I can call to that I can speak on that other people aren't going to understand just because that's not their experience. Uh, and so, you know, that there is, is a part, uh, just a part of a long tradition of, of, of you know, is how we're treated. Um, additionally, um, the current school I'm at right now, University Pathways Public Service Academy, actually the principal actually went to high school with him. He's a black man. He's like three years, actually three years younger than me. Uh, you know, he grew up in Compton. So he was actually, he's actually pretty, pretty radical and progressive in many senses. Um, you know, and, you know, I have, I have a couple critiques. They're not really critiques. They're just kind of like when it comes to like my politics and, and about the economic system and stuff like that, I'm like, yeah, but he's a great guy. Uh, and he really supports me and he's really about empowering teachers and letting teachers do, do their thing and do their best. He just wants, whatever it is that you do, he just wants you to do your best. Um, and you know, yeah, he, I, I just, I feel really supported in my current role. Um, and I think it's precisely because of who is an admin, right? And I see, so I think that's the other level is, is who gets, who gets selected to, to leave schools. Um, and what are, what are the philosophies of those who, you know, are selected to leave schools and become principals and assistant principals? Because I think that in many ways, that's actually more important than, not, it's not more important than who's teaching, but I think that you, in order, in addition to having teachers who are radical and who are progressive, you also need uh, admin who are, who are just as supportive of their teachers and let their teachers uh, do what they need to do and serve the communities that uh, they're serving. Yeah. Thank you. And definitely, um, like both of you mentioned, like there's a idea that, oh, we need to have, once you have ethnic studies, everything will be all right. Or I, I know when the restorative justice program was kind of becoming popular, um, I felt like most schools didn't even know how to run the actual restorative justice process. It was just kind of like, it just became an, an alternative form of uh, punishment, <laughs> you know, but they just call it restorative justice. I know like certain law enforcement departments call use say they have restorative justice, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's not real restorative justice. I feel like the word kind of gets co-opted. I can definitely see that with ethnic studies. Um, yeah, I mean, the co-optation is just real under the system of capitalism. White that was the word I was thinking, co-opting. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, there you go. Yeah. And... I, and like Aldrich, when you mentioned that like you weren't for the uh, I guess the implementing ethnic studies like as a as a, a district wide or like I guess citywide uh, requirement, I was kind of surprised. But when you gave the reason, I'm like, okay, I see that point. Like that makes sense, you know, because you're gonna have these teachers that may not know like what they're talking about teaching your classes, and like you know, in your case, uh, Marquis, you just have like another white teacher teaching the the subject that you were supposed to be teaching, you know. Um, it, yeah, it just, it just becomes like selective and it's like only certain people are allowed to teach certain things and it's, it's still going to be like a lot of, you know, fight back and resistance that we, we have to keep doing. Um, Aldrich, I don't know if you wanted to address the question that you, you, you wrote on the document. Yeah. Was that about the Patriot Act? Yeah. I think. And, um, maybe folks are going to clar clarify for me if that. Um, I need to refresh my memory if that was an executive order or if that was something in the works because 
he did pass an exec. He signed off in an executive order against what was that like diversity trainings? I think, right? So I, don't, I think the Patriot Act was like around the that the Patriotic Education Act. He was bringing it up at the same time, but I don't think it went any further. Um, but um, yeah, so that came up also last night during our Ethnic Studies Community Collaborative. Some folks in the community were like. Is that going to affect us and what we do? Um, and I was telling folks, like, for the most part, no. In California, we know we have to listen to the, of course, the California Department of Education or Board of Education. Um, and we pull our curriculum, our standards, and all of that from there. Um, and, but at the same time, I, I do feel like um, it is an attack right, to not just ethnic studies folks in high school or university folks, academics, um, but I think it's an attack on science teachers, you know, attack on folks who are teaching language. Um, any, any form of like critical studies that folks are doing, which is, it's all the common core, right, that deep critical thinking, um, I feel like it's an attack on that, you know, and definitely as a high school teacher, um, who who doesn't like, I, I teach whatever I think the students need. I don't, it's usually extremely controversial, but the thing is students, that's what's interesting right now. That's what interests students, you know, like it's, 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 I'm at a point now where students will, and um, will go to me. It's just like this new generation of students, like I'm just really amazed right now, especially about the, with all of them leading the movements across the country, all the protests around black lives. Um, in the movements for black lives. And a lot of my upcoming students will message me like after they take my class or they know me, like, hey, Mr. Sabak, I'm like, what's up? Like, hey, 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 real quick. Is that one teacher that I'm registered for, is he a Trump supporter? Cause that's, that's what's going around right now. Like students are talking and like, if that's true, I'm dropping out. So let me know, do you know? So like, I'll get into these really interesting discussions, you know, and, 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 and yeah. When Trump brought that up, I saw that as a direct attack to everyone who is just trying to, like, you know, teach critical thinking, transformative thinking, like, liber liberatory practices and teaching. Like, I feel like it's an attack on all of us. But um, definitely would love to hear what everyone else's thoughts are uh, with that. Yeah, just to give a more context, um, I know the New York Times, like, published a segment called the 1619 Project back in 2019, where it centers, like, the history of the narratives of the African slaves, and it narrates the history of America through that lens, and I know Trump, I think recently, I don't know how long ago, uh, you know, mentioned the Patriot Act, and then there was something called the 1776 Project, which was a direct response to the 1619 Project, where it's just talking about, like, patriotic history. And it's pretty much just the history that we've been taught, you know, for these past generations. There's nothing different. <laughs> but uh, that just kind of gives the context on uh, what uh, Aldrich was talking about, too. I, I, I think I had a, I just have a, a, something I'm wondering about or a question. Because uh, as far as I'm aware of, the, at least in terms of the details of the executive order, it only affects branches of the federal government or i guess government contractors and i well and i'm pretty i i'm, I'm not sure who exactly qualifies as a government contractor i'm not sure if that like includes states and public schools and stuff like that but as far as i know like that's that's as far as the reach of the executive order 
so it wouldn't affect things like charter schools for example uh maybe it doesn't affect public schools but I, i'm i'm not sure who who counts as a as a as a government contractor i, I don't know if you guys have are, are more familiar with that i and um good question carlos because i'm still trying to like remember those parts I, I that part might be the the other thing the executive order also folks correct me if i'm wrong um in which they don't want like diversity trainings and stuff like that um which is a good point but i, I assume with that it, it'd be anyone who is getting funded by the government in any kind of any shape or form like post office or oh, good point title one funding um yeah so i'm assuming that's what i would assume you know definitely you need to read up on that more um i think because with the patriotic education act i knew for sure that wasn't going to affect me although it was like an attack on all of us i was trying to just focus on that because it, it, it's it's amazing you know like it for a long time a lot of like folks on the right have been kind of like what is up with these leftist voices in schools and they're taking it's just like some craziness like as if that's so much of an attack or it, it's i don't know but um yeah it's it's really weird you know like and a lot of universities and colleges that's how they are they share these ideas or they share factual information even though they're not trying to be political um so it, it is really weird yes it's a very interesting phenomenon happening right now yeah um i think so i read an article um i was reading it today and it talked about how trump is actually he shifted from uh criminalizing and demonizing immigrants to actually uh demonizing the left right and it's it's kind of like a two a, a split approach to dealing how do you deal if you're a settler colony how do you deal with uh the fact that most of the people that or a good portion of the people that live in your in your state don't come from your from your ethnic group uh and one thing one one thing you can do is to oppress them um and and, and be repressive and and be directly violent towards them and do everything such as putting kids in cages and deport deportation uh, and the other thing you can do is, is turn some of those people into neo-colonialists right and so i come from a school of thought where we acknowledge that um many of the people that are you know agents of oppression are actually our own people uh, and it, it makes sense that he would that donald trump would resort to this strategy because he needs more Latinx people to vote for him. He, he needs more black people to vote for him too. So he's trying to, he, I, I see that he's, it's an attack, um, you know, the, the Patriotic Education Act, it's an attack on ethnic studies. But it's, you know, it's a very political tactic, right? It's, it's you know, there's a lot of title one funding that our schools depend on. And so if he, create, if he comes up with this act, what, how is he going to put leverage or how is he going to influence um, you know, local decision makers and educators and, you know, superintendents and, and threaten them with pulling this money. Um, as well as you just saw that, I don't, and I don't, I don't know exactly why he did it, but Gavin Newsom just vetoed um, the high school um, or the, the high school um, ethnic studies bill that was, that was sent. And I don't know if that has to do with, you know, pressure from the federal government, if he's trying to play it low. But I do know that he uh, he said that uh, ethnic studies would be a requirement for higher education. So I don't know what the politics around that are, but I definitely see that Donald Trump's uh, 
you know, education is political. You can never, education can't ever be, it can't ever be a neutral act. You either, you're either educating people to reproduce the status quo or you, you're educating people to overturn the status quo. And I think conservatives actually keenly aware, are, are keenly aware of uh, the danger of, of radical pedagogy in terms of preserving their order. It's not, they can't, it's, they don't have enough people, they don't have enough courage to actually beat us down uh, militarily. And so they have to, it has to be, it has to be through influence. In the same way that if we want to overturn the system, we can't say we're going to go, we're going to just go fight everybody. We have to persuade enough people to see our viewpoint. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely trying to set a president and trying to lay the, the groundwork and, and, and establish conditions uh, to where radical pedagogy, uh, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to survive in a hostile environment. That's what I see, you know. Yeah, this whole pushback on ethnic studies and uh, Trump enforcing the Patriotic Education Act is nothing new, I feel like. Because I know, uh, Aldrich, you mentioned earlier about the Tucson district. Now, they had like Mexican-American studies for a while and it, it got taken out. I know Carlos and I watched a documentary back in like 2010. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Carlos, The Precious Knowledge, which was uh, about the uh, schools in uh, Arizona where they were fighting to keep Mexican-American studies alive. And, you know, it, it had a lot of great benefits for the students. Like, a lot, of, a lot more graduation rates went up. School retention was high. Uh, but conservatives, uh, people on the right, fear um, these, these kind of studies. They even had, like, uh, someone from, I don't know if it was an education board, but some white dude went in and observed the class. And, you know, he, got, he saw what he saw, and he's just like, oh, they're just pretending or they're just – performing a show for me for this today or whatever you know so no matter what you do i feel like they're not going to be convinced it's like they're just so convinced that this has to be taken out and we we got to revert back to you know the 1776 type of history um it's it's like a very hard uh it's very challenging it's there's too much pushback there's too much support from the government to you know hold the ethnic studies down and i was also like looking at stats and data about uh college students who majored in ethnic studies and they actually have a higher graduation rate and higher retention rate than um, other majors. And part of it has to do with the, you know, the, the ethnic studies majors are pretty small comparison to like other majors. I mean, that's one factor. And also since it is small, they're able to kind of take care of the students pretty well. So like in addition to like learning about your own history and being empowered and like serving the community that you want to serve, uh, you're also getting a lot of uh, support and uh, good relationship building from the professors or from the advisors or from the department because they take care of you pretty well. I remember like, you know, be, me being ethnic studies major at UCSD, like there was like, only like 30 or 40 of us uh, every year graduating. The advisor would take time to make the graduation stoles, you know, like she would actually ha hand make it herself for every student uh, that's graduating in a department. So that was like, you know, something that she didn't have to do, but she she felt like she wanted to do. So like that key to the building that long, you know, lasting relationship is also very, I feel like is also, I wouldn't say it's like a key foundation in ethnic studies, but I noticed the correlation with that, you know. I just want to comment like about this pushback. You know, the, the sad thing for me about this pushback against ethnic studies is that a lot of the time, like a lot of the time, Oh, like the sad thing about this pushback against ethnic studies and like this pressure for having, like you said, like a 1776 style education is that um, a lot of ethnic studies 
is not just ethnic studies, it's also local history, right? Aldrich talked about, you know, finally learning about Larry Idalong. Like that's, that's not just, he's not just an ethnic figure, he's a local figure, right? That's local politics, that's local history. Um, like, you know, Mexicans, we have Cesar Chavez and like, there's that history too. That's local history as well. I feel like a lot of the time when like, we're not engaged with history uh, in, you know, in like, like these primary school history courses is that because we're learning all about all these people that did stuff, you know, 200 years ago, thousands of miles away on the East Coast, right? Like that's, that's very abstract. Um, when I visited like cities like New York for the first time, like I visited New York by the first time, like two years ago, I also visited Philadelphia. I finally like like uh, when I went to Philadelphia two years ago, like I finally went to this building. I forget the name of it, but it's the building where the Constitution was actually signed, or I forget the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, some something like that. There's a lot. There's like uh, things related to like the foundation of the country. When I was actually there, I was able to engage with it way more, way more. That 1776 style history became much more real for me once I was actually in the place where a lot of these events happen, right? Here in California, that's, that's abstract. That might as well be fantasy. We might as well be talking about things that happened in China or something, because that's just so far away from our own reality, right? Our own reality is stuff that Larry Idalong did, stuff that Cesar Chavez did, stuff that is just California history too, right? You know, the, the, founding of the state by the Spanish, right? The, the labor that immigrants did when they arrived here, right? The, the Native Americans that either disappeared or assimilated into like the, the Latin culture here. Um, when I learned about stuff like that, that was so much more real for me because I, I mean, it just, it made more sense. It happened here in our, our space, right? So that's for me that's that's the that's the terrible thing about the pushback like i mean maybe maybe there's another way to sell it you know sell it as local history but that it's it's just so important i think like you know it's ethnic studies i mean maybe we, we would have to rebrand it to make it more appealing but it's it's it is necessary because it's it's local history too i want to just say something about the 1619 project if i can um can you guys hear me yeah i can hear you yeah, so, I mean, the 1619, the pushback against the 1619 project, um, I mean, it's just, you know, your bread and butter reactionary response. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, a project that comes out and it talks about the, the, the origins of American capitalism and how, how Africans enslaved and, and, and building up the American economy are the foundation of American capitalism. And for, uh, for, for people that believe in white supremacy, that believe in uh, the intelligence and the, the the genius of Western civilization, they want that to be the bedrock of of, of American capitalism and this. But rather rather than the ingenuity, even of of Africans, um, you know, creating things, inventing things, producing all of the all of the produce. Um, and one story on the 1619 project is actually really. It's really heartbreaking and really telling uh, because it talks about a, a man and his son uh, who had a farm, and I believe it was, it was in Louisiana, uh, and they were he, he had a farm, and 
eventually what ended up coming out was that the, the, the banks were deliberately not giving, uh, they were like, the man would go to the bank to get a loan and they would kind of like, you know, drag their feet and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't process it. And they, they, at some point they gave him a loan and they didn't, but they didn't give him a loan that was enough to cover his expenses. And the way that farming works is that you have, you actually take out a loan um, and you take out a loan to cover your expenses and that's how you operate the, the, the farm. And you make, you might make some margin um, on top of your expenses, but really you, the way that, and this is how most commercial farms work is you, you, you plant your crops and then you harvest it and then you pay back um, the loan after you harvest. Um, but they messed him up to the point where he, he had to prep, he had to plant his crop at a time when everybody was harvesting. So his crop couldn't actually, um, he could, he, his, he basically had crop failure essentially. Um, and it was kind of like, so it was engineered that way. It wasn't like he did anything wrong, but he would, the man was going around and he, at the time he was planting his crop, he was watching all the white people harvest their crops. Uh, and this is like, this is like as recent as a few years ago. And the sad thing about the story is a man, um, you know, he ended up having, his son was running the farm, but the man, because they couldn't, they didn't have enough resources and they just needed to find a way to make it work. The man who I think he might've been in his sixties or something like that, he was out in the farm and he had like heart problems and health problems and the stress from like not getting his farm funded and all these things that deteriorated his health. And he went out and he didn't have any other choice to, he was actually on the farm himself and he actually ended up dying when he, sh he shouldn't have been on the farm in the first place, but he was out there trying to make his farm work and, plant and, and planting crops during the harvest season. Uh, and it was the banks that were deliberately, and this is a practice that's still ongoing, right? Banks selectively giving people loans based on race. Uh, and I think it, it's not even just that a lot of people don't, they hate that history. That history, t it, it tells the dirty secrets of, of how America works, right? Uh, um, and <laughs> if you if you watch if you if you if you listen to it or you read the stories of, of the sixteen nineteen project, it's some real shit. Uh, and you know it's it's no surprise that there's a reactionary force that's trying to stamp it out. You know, and the way that I see America really is is kind of like America is is the analog to South Africa, apartheid South Africa. It looks a little bit prettier, um, maybe a little bit more refined. But you're starting to see right now, especially in these times, you know that you know we're no we're no we're no different. You know, we're we're the we're the we're the same. It's the same thing. You got you got white folks that are scared of of losing power, and they're willing to do whatever to maintain power. And, and if uh, if a project that comes out in the podcast in in the New York Times, if that come, comes out, and if that's if that threatens the status quo, then there's going to be pushback against that. So that's that's all I wanted to add about, about that. Uh, and that's what I, I completely agree with Marquis. Like it's about power. You know, like they'll come up with any excuse that, hey, it's not right, it's revisionist history, it's blah, 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 it's, it's un-American, it's a victimization. But really, these folks know, like these, what students are learning from really good educators, professors, mentors, community organizers, you know, like it's challenging power. And, I, and, and for me, that's what I really think. It's like that capitalism, that white supremacy, they know like you know folks are coming for this you know they're trying to abolish that and and they're i think afraid which is really interesting um and i feel like when trump is bringing up these discussions about how he's against this and we did push against this it's it's that power you know 
what which sucks though because of like i guess the hegemony he promotes like he just gets folks to jump along and start saying stuff like oh that's un-american you know that's that's not who we are blah 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 even though folks are just learning about themselves and they're trying to make society better so it's it's a really interesting dynamic how it's all working out you know like even just what's going on in the media every day it's like wow every day it's something crazy and um just so amazing how all this is just playing out <laughs>